Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanities. Alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. How you doing, Josh? I'm doing great, Phil. Thanks for having me back. I know I wasn't there for a couple of weeks, but hey, Luke Rockhold can't be on every card. When I found out he was on this card, <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to make it happen. You so, made a thanks. special effort to be on this one. I appreciate that. Uh, well, listeners, I want to apologize for this show being a little bit late. We normally... We normally publish in the morning uh, on, uh, on on Mondays, but uh, due to a few different circumstances, uh, we're not able to get this out until the evening. One of the circumstances is the fact that I am down for the count with COVID right now. Uh, fortunately, I am on the upswing. I'm doing a lot better. Uh, I'm still pretty tired, but this is, yeah, it's it's not as bad as this is actually my second time having it. Um, despite being vaccinated, it's my second time and uh, yeah, not fun. But uh, but definitely a lot better than the last time, and I'm uh, I'm I'm doing better, but I'm pretty tired. So we're gonna try to keep this one a little bit on the short side. I do want to say Happy Martin Luther King Day to everybody. Hope that you did something to mark uh, the occasion and out of respect for Dr. King's contributions to society. But I also want to welcome you to this show. Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013, and on the on the episode today we're going to be discussing strike force rockhold versus jardine which took place on january 7th 2012 at the hard rock hotel and casino outside las vegas as we record this i just realized this is 375 days uh i'm sorry 375 days <laughs> sorry 10 years plus 10 days so i don't know where i got 375 from 365 days in a year plus 10 i don't know my brain's a, a little uh, a little weird and a little off as you can you might imagine but anyways almost exactly 10 years ago as we record this uh, on the main card tyron woodley would take on fellow rising star jordan Meehan. king mo would return to fight a rising star in lorenz larkin in the co-main event robbie lawler would battle upstart adlin amagov and then in the main event josh kind of already revealed it but luke rockhold would defend his newly won Strikeforce middleweight championship for the first time against the Dean of Mean, Keith Jardine. I want to mention that Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out the other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. Well, as we like to do on these episodes, we like to talk about the fallout from the last major Strike Force event, which was Melendez versus Masvidal. The big story there really wasn't the card itself. It was more in terms of Strike Force re-upping with Showtime. There had been whispers that Zufa would shut the promotion down if they weren't able to land a broadcast deal, and there was some renegotiating going on. Dana White has always had a, a rather cantankerous relationship, <laughs> for lack of a better word, with Showtime and, and Showtime executives. And recently, Ken Hirschman, who had brought on Strikeforce and Elite XC, had left the the, uh, the network. And so there was really a lot of question about whether or not they would move on with Strikeforce, especially now that they were owned by Zufa. And they were, you know, were seeing a lot of their really most attractive fighters from the box office perspective being moved over to the UFC. So there was a lot of question about that. However, the promotion would continue on. It would be a schedule of only six to eight events per year rather than a month monthly events alongside the uh, um, the challenger series the challenger series was now gone they were they'd gotten rid of that and the heavyweight division would be folded after the Grand Prix was completed at some point in 2012 so a lot of news coming out around the time of Melendez versus Masvidal for the event itself we saw KJ Nunes and Gegard Mousasi come away with wins that likely vaulted vaulted them back into title contention in their respective divisions and then in the main event 
event, Gilbert Melendez defended his lightweight title in a workmanlike unanimous decision victory over Jorge Masvidal. But it was the co-main event that grabbed the most attention as Chris Cyborg destroyed her opponent in only 16 seconds. However, she did it with a steroid in her system. And once she tested positive, she would lose both her victory and her title in addition to being suspended, which would end up being the end of her run in Strikeforce because by the time her suspension was done, uh, Strikeforce was on its last legs. And so she would end up moving over to Invicta. You might have, you know, maybe we would have seen Dana White instead of bringing in Ronda Rousing and building the 135 division around her. Maybe you would have, you know, brought in Cyborg. I honestly, I doubt it. He clearly wasn't a huge fan of hers at the time. And, you know, she was fighting at 145, which the problem with Strikeforce, as far as Chris Cyborg went, they didn't have a lot of viable contenders for her. That was going to be an issue with the UFC as well. So maybe it wouldn't have mattered. Regardless, it was a very costly mistake on Cyborg's part because that opened up the door for a lot of questions uh, about her. You know, did she cheat to get to where she was at, et cetera, et cetera. It's the only time in her career that she's tested positive, but there are still questions about that today, unfortunately. So a lot of, uh, a lot of consequences from that decision, unfortunately, for her. It might have been some tainted meat in Mexico. Let's give her the benefit <laughs> of the doubt, Phil. Yeah, there you go. Although we don't know. If, there's no. <laughs> there's nothing ever been said about her training in Mexico, and definitely not with Canelo. So, uh, I don't. I don't. I, I don't. I don't. I don't buy it. <laughs> uh, but anyways, all right. So. For this fight, uh, for this event itself, Rockhold versus Jardine, originally the card, interestingly, was supposed to feature a women's bantamweight title bout between champion Misha Tate and former champion Sarah Kaufman. However, this this fight would never materialize. They actually uh, interviewed Tate on the broadcast about this, and they, she was asked about taking on Ronda Rousey instead. And you could tell she didn't like Ronda already. They had already started beefing on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, you could see the uh, the feud was starting to, to build up already. She t- said that she didn't think Ronda was deserving. She'd only been in MMA for a year or two, while her and Kaufman had both been in for six years. Kaufman was a former champion, et cetera. So it was clear that she pre- preferred to fight Kaufman. But at the same time, you could see the beginnings of the feud that would, you know, <laughs> would burn into a, an inferno. And I don't think they, they like each other even, even today. And I'm looking forward to covering that fight. Uh, also, originally, it was not supposed to be Keith Jardine. It was supposed to be Tim Kennedy getting a second shot at the Strike Force Middleweight title, this time against Luke Rockhold. However, he got injured. So it was the former UFC light heavyweight contender in Jardine uh, who would make his middleweight debut with a very questionable title shot. And we'll talk more about this. I mean, but man, he hadn't even won his last Strike Force fight. It was uh, that was his promotional debut. He, he fought to a draw with Gegard Musassi in a very entertaining light heavyweight bout. But about that many people thought Musassi had won, including myself. And now we're going to go ahead and give him a title fight in a division that he had not competed in yet. It just really didn't make a lot of sense, uh, but it would likely be a good fight. And again, we'll talk, Josh, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. We'll talk more about it when we get to that fight on the card. But yeah, not 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 something that really made a lot of sense on paper at the at least. I don't even remember the Musasi Jardine fight, but I know Musasi won it. It might have been it might have been, it might have been one of the ones that I that I covered on the show that you weren't available for. But yeah, it was a very good fight. It was a bloody fight and very entertaining. But I felt like Musasi won the fight. A and and I, if I remember correctly, now that I'm thinking, yeah, Musasi had a t- had a point taken away. That's right, Musasi had a, f- a point taken away for a questionable call. It was like you know he should have been given possibly given a warning and said he'd gotten a point taken away, and that's why it ended up being a draw. Otherwise, if it, if that hadn't happened on the judges' scorecard, he was the winner. So yeah, even so, even less makes even less sense now that we're talking through it. But 
But anyways, all right, again, Strikeforce Rockhold versus Jardine was held on January 7, 2012 at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino outside Vegas. The event, which was, this was in keeping with Strikeforce's decline at the box office, drew a total attendance of 1,992 fans. So this is under 2,000 fans. And here's the even worse, the worst numbers. Of those 19, 1,992 fans, only 927 paid for tickets, while over 1,000, 1,065 received complimentary tickets. That means more people didn't pay to get in than paid to get in, and there were still 727 tickets left unsold. Pretty sad. Uh, gate receipts for the event totaled a paltry $68,805. $68,805. And when you compare that, to the, yeah, I mean, you can just see why, why, they, why they ended up getting closed down. Uh, the official uh, uh, disclosed fighter payroll is $566,000. So they paid out $566,000, only took in $68,000. I mean, that's not a sustainable business model. That's just not going to work. So very unfortunate. On the plus side, um, they'd averaged 344,000 viewers on Showtime, and we had Mauro Ronaldo, Frank Shamrock, and Pat Militich back as commentators. Were you going to say something there, Josh? Well, I was going to push back a little bit here. Uh, you know, this might have been the UFC setting up Strikeforce to fail. Why did they have the show in Las Vegas, first of all? If this same card is in San Jose, it, it's going to do three times. I mean, it's going to do more than three times. You're going to fill at least fill up half the Shark Tank with the AKA people in the AKA crowd. I don't know why they did this. Las Vegas is historically a boxing town. It, of course, it's a UFC town. Um, this venue made it feel a little bit rinky-dink. Uh, the setup was odd at the Hard Rock Cafe. That They had to kind of scale this wall or walk next to this wall when they made their entrances. It gave it kind of a lame look. I just felt like, yeah, it was obviously not a good showing from an attendance perspective, but... Why are you picking up and putting Strikeforce in, in Vegas? That just seems to me like bad booking. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I agree with you. I mean, they weren't going to their familiar haunts, but then again, they were in San Diego for the Masvidal Melendez uh, uh, event, and that drew just under three thousand. So it's not like they were doing well in you know in California either at this point. I think the bloom was off the rose, and pretty much anywhere they ran outside of San Jose probably wasn't going to do very 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 well. Yeah, well, you know, it's not my fault Luke Rockhold can't cut a promo, so it is what it is. <laughs> well, I don't think it's all on him, but yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. All right, well, let's get to the, the, the card itself. Uh, so on the undercard, uh, we had at welterweight, Nashan Burrell defeated James Terry via split decision. At 205 pounds, Jean Volante defeated Trevor Smith via TKO come by way of punches at 105 of the first round. And then at 155 pounds, Ricky Laguerre defeated Chris Bang via unanimous decision. At a catchweight bout of 160 pounds, Estevan Payon defeated Alonzo Martinez via unanimous decision. Should point out that Payon was actually a, a replacement for Bobby Green, who'd gotten injured. Then at 170 pounds, the main the main event of the undercard, so to speak, Tarek Safadine defeated Tyler Stinson, Stinson excuse me, via split decision. You know, Phil, I was going to say something. I, I watched this because I like Tarek Safadine, and uh, it was an interesting fight. I was I, I didn't was going to ask you if you knew anything about Tyler Stinson. This guy wore his hair in ways a fighter should never wear his hair. He he had kind of a man bun, so it was like straight up. Well, I guess a bat, man bun's a ball. He had it kind of like pulled up right above his head, and then he had long hair. Um, 
uh, Joe, not Joe Rogan, uh, Frank Shamrock called him a hippie samurai. Is a very odd look. <laughs> okay. And he was tall, and he looked like he was going to be like a killer in there. And then he got in there and fought in a very soft, kind of weak fight. I'm like, you can't go into the hexagon with that hairdo and then fight like that. Um, yeah, he probably got lucky with the split decision. There it was probably not that close, but I don't know. Did you do you know anything about Tyler Stinson? Not, no, not really. I'm looking through his. Uh, I'm looking through his fight record, and I mean, he fought some. He fought. So he fought a lot. By the way, he had 40 fights. He won 30 of them. 19 of them were by knockout. Seven of them were by uh, submission. So, I mean, he had a lot of finishes on his record. He beat Drew Fickett. Um, lost to Dan Hornbuckle. Lost to Safadine, as we know. Uh, he would go on to lose in a, another strike force fight that we'll talk about uh, upcoming. He lost to Josh Berkman. Um, those are really like the name guys that he fought. So yeah, not 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 really uh, a super memorable uh, career. You know, he fought a few times, fought for Bellator, World Series of Fighting, and of course Strike Force. But yeah, not really super well known uh, guy, and not super memorable either. But. Yeah. Well, that fight's worth watching just for his hair. So just okay. for five seconds. <laughs> All right. Well, this brings us to the, excuse me, brings us to the main card. Uh, at 170 pounds, Tyron Woodley would take on Jordan Meehan. The undefeated Tyron Woodley was 9-0 and coming in. He had had seven of those wins were in, in strike force, of course. He'd beaten Andre Galvo, Tarek Safadine, and Paul Daly in his last three bouts seemed primed to get a welterweight title shot if he could get past Meehan. He was clearly, clearly a star on the rise and somebody they were spotlighting in that welterweight division. The son of former MMA fighter, well, actually I said former, but he actually was still active at the time. Uh, Jordan Meehan was 24-7 and seven coming in. He was something of a prodigy in MMA. He had made his pro debut at the tender age of 16, I believe. His amateur debut was at the age of 13. Uh, but and, and by the way, that first fight when he was 16, that was against Rory McDonald, a name that, that we might recognize. Uh, but obviously, he had a ton of fights for someone who was only 22 years old, 22 years old at the time of this fight. Uh, most of those fights, we should mention, had been against unheralded competition. However, he'd really gone on a tear recently. He'd recently beaten Strikeforce vets Joe Riggs and Mary Soromskis, as well as UFC veteran Josh Berkman. Then in his Strikeforce debut, he, he had TKO'd former welterweight title challenger Cyborg Santos with some really scary standing elbows. So here, here he is on a six-fight win streak, included victories over all these named fighters. Jordan Meehan, I mean, this he wasn't super well-known. This Canadian looked like he's going to be a tough test for Tyron Woodley. Uh, on a side note, I should mention Jordan's dad, Lee Meehan, I would mentioned that he was a former fighter. He is still fighting today. At 54 years old, I saw him with a nickname somewhere as like the Grampinator, it like like Grandpa, but but Terminator. I, I don't, <laughs> sure. sure. Uh, it, it, for a guy that made his pro debut in 2000, he doesn't a he doesn't have a great record, and b he hasn't fought that many times. He's only 11 and 16, so he's been fighting for 22 years as a pro, and he's only got what is that 27 six nine I can do math 28 only got 28 fights in 22 years so he doesn't fight all that often but he has fought Christoph Shoshinsky Dan Severn Jeff Monson and Hollis Gracie he lost to all those guys but yeah as we record this he just fought in October of 2021 so just a few months ago so pretty pretty impressive but 
As we got into the fight, clear height advantage for me and as the two started, the two felt things out on the feet with both doing uh, a mix of punches, kicks, and feints. Uh, you could just see, again, how tall Mian was. He seemed to have a good reach advantage, but uh, and, and that he used that to his, 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 his advantage when he hit a really nice right uppercut that drew a bit of blood from Woodley's left eye. T. Wood tried for a couple of takedowns, landed the second one after some good takedown D. Uh, he improved his position somewhat, landed a few decent, decent shots, but Mian was able to withstand before scrambling and getting back to his feet. Definitely 10-9 for Woodley after the first. Nice overhand right from Woodley early on in the second round. Backed up Meehan, who then got taken down. That's where the fight stayed, with Woodley doing some good work from the top, while Meehan stayed busy from the bottom. Another 10-9 round for Woodley, who wasn't doing a ton of damage, but he was definitely active, and getting those takedowns was helping him. Meehan caught Woodley with a nice flying knee to start off the final frame, and though it appeared to connect, Woodley wrapped him up and turned it into a takedown. More good work from both, but the ref didn't think it was enough and stood things up, which drew a lot of questions from the commentary. Meehan tried to strike, but Woodley knew he just needed to get to hold on and he would tie up the Canadian every chance he got. Another real grinding round for Woodley, who took about 30 to 27 on my score scorecards, drew a lot of healthy boos from the crowd. They showed Woodley's wife on camera a few times, and you know she was obviously cheering her man. Uh, at least one of the judges disagreed with me, as Tyron Woodley actually only got a split decision win, although I thought it was a clear Yanis decision victory for, for T. Wood. Yeah, I thought Woodley won the fight. I, I was a little bit bothered, a little bit upset by the way Woodley fought this fight. I guess I would have been one of those people in the crowd booing. No, I wouldn't have been booing. But it was it was sort of frustrating because it sort of showed the, the up-and-down style of Woodley. Now, obviously, he's young in his career at this point. He's 9-0. and He's on the rise. But in hindsight, we can sort of see what he would become he fought way too conservative in this fight. He fought really cautiously. Obviously, he wrestled. It was enough to win. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. But that only works when you're fighting somebody who's clearly a lesser opponent than you. And it doesn't do much to impress judges. It doesn't do much to impress other fighters. And it's sort of the sad case of, of Woodley. And if it's one criticism that I have him is that He's kind of like this super athlete who fights as opposed to being a fighter who's also a super athlete. And yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to bring up Jake Paul because he's obviously doesn't deserve to be in this conversation of these great MMA fighters. But, you know, it, it, it would show up again, you know, even later in his career when he's taken on a guy that he clearly just should go clobber. But, you know, he fights defensively and, you know, he loses to a guy who's not a fighter. So... I know it kind of a you know he won the fight, but it made me think, gosh, Tyron Woodley, this is not the best you can be, and I don't know why you're so cautious this early in your career. Yeah, kind of similar to uh, to Robbie Lawler in that way, in that uh, you know just kind of seemed to be slow to pull the trigger sometimes. And this one, he definitely fought conservatively. I mean, he he absolutely fought conservatively, and and yeah, that just seemed to be kind of he pull off these I, I remember Militich saying he after he landed uh a really I think that right hand said you know he has these moments of brilliance which I was like well okay he landed a punch I don't know if that's a moment of brilliance but you know but basically he shows these flashes of of his power and his ability and obviously he is a super athlete but yeah he he didn't fight like a fighter he fought like an athlete who could fight exactly what you were saying so I, I agree with that and it's it's kind of you know he's one of the greatest welterweights of all time 
But if he had let go, yeah, maybe he would have lost more, but but maybe he would have won more too. You know, really no way of knowing. But regardless, both Woodley and Meehan would be back on the Strike Force card in July of 2012, though in very different fights, as Woodley would get that championship opportunity that he talked about in the post-fight uh, interview with Mauro Ranallo. He would lock horns with Nate Marquardt for the vacant welterweight title, while Meehan would match up with Tyler Stinson, who had just lost via uh, split decision to Tarek Safadine on the undercard. So they were moving in different directions, obviously. All right, the next bout, at excuse me, 205 pounds, King Mo Lawal would take on Lorenz Larkin. Mo was 8-1 and coming in, had won three of his four strike force fights. In his last bout, which had come after missing a year due to knee surgery, he'd brutally knocked out Hodger Gracie after being out of the hexagon uh, following his light heavyweight title loss to Fajal Cavalcante. Now the wrestling standout with knockout power was looking to get back into title contention. Lorenz Larkin was a shooting star at this point, undefeated at 12-0. and He'd won three straight in strike force, though, to be fair. He'd faced few named fighters thus far. King Mo was a big step up for Larkin, but he definitely had had an opportunity to make a name for himself against the former champ. I, I got to say, when I saw Larkin come out, who I'm, it's not a fighter that I'm super, super familiar with. When I saw him come out, I just I thought he looked pudgy. Like his video, you know, his face looked kind of fat. And I'm like, this is a guy that should be cutting down to 185. And I know now that he's spent the bulk of his career at 185 pounds, but it was obvious. Just look at him like this guy's got like almost like baby fat on him. Like he needs to (laughs) cut down. And and it was interesting because Militich pointed out on commentary right at the beginning, Mo grabs him and just powerful takedown. And obviously Mo's a world-class wrestler, but Militich brought up the weight thing and said, you know, Larkin had had, he'd been asked about moving down to middleweight, but he said he hadn't felt anyone strong enough in the cage that would make him feel like he needed to, to move down. And it was like, well, this is the guy that'll change your mind on that. And, and it was, uh, it was pretty clear. So first round Mo lands some good ground and pound after that takedown made it a little odd uh, that the referee stood them up because Mo was clearly being aggressive and, and, and landing, but she did it with just over a minute left in the opening, opening round Larkin went for it while King Mo avoided 10, nine for Mo after the first round. Yeah. Kim Winslow is not good in this fight. I do not like her, uh, I should say her refereeing. I, I, I don't think she's very good. Um, uh, King Mo was doing damage. There's no need to stand them up. Yes, the crowd is booing, but like the crowd is not fighting. Um, they weren't just kind of holding each other. He was actually doing some damage, so that was a yeah. bad call. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And she made another bad call <laughs> later in this fight, which we'll talk about. Another early takedown for Mo in the second round. And this would be the beginning of the end for the smaller Larkin. He tied up Mo pretty well for a bit, but then the former wrestling star found an opening for his right hand and threw. I, 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 it was like 12 punches in a row, basically. And they weren't all like, you know, straight up clean shots, but they were enough to definitely knock Larkin out. I mean, just brutal. So official decision at the time, Molo all defeated Lorenz Larkin via KO come by way of punches at 132 of the second round and Mo gets up and he's all like yelling, but he looked kind of mad. And I was like, that's kind of weird. And he apparently went over to Militich at cage side and was like, you know, the ref should have stopped it sooner basically. And then he was still talking to Winslow about it while she was holding his wrist to raise it, to say that he was victorious. It was very clear that uh, Mo thought the fight should have been stopped sooner. I definitely, especially when I saw it on replay, I, I, at the, when I saw it live, I was kind of like, eh, 
I, I, you know, I guess because he seemed like Larkin seemed to be okay, and yeah, he took a couple extra, but I, you know, but then I saw it on replay. I was like, okay, the ref should have definitely stopped that sooner. I mean, he, he, he could, she could have saved him a few punches to the face for sure. Yeah, that was too much. Um, and if you recall in the post-fight interview, King Mo or uh, um, Mauro Ronaldo asked him about it, and King Mo he kind of backstepped a little bit. And he said he talked to Kim Winslow, and she said that she just wanted to give Larkin every opportunity to figure out a way to survive, which clearly he wasn't. There was no way for him to come back there. But King Mo just kind of said, okay, if that were me, he would want to be put to sleep before the referee stopped it. But, I mean, this fight should have been stopped. There was no way that Lorenz Larkin was coming back. And I have split views on Lorenz Larkin. Like He seems like a good guy, uh, you know, a decent fighter. But I don't know what his game plan was here. And, you know, you mentioned he looked kind of chubby coming out. He, he I think part of that, too, is like Daniel Cormier never looked cut. But when he would come out, he looked ready to fight. Like every fight he's ever fought, you know. And, he you know, he's sweating. He's ready to go. Larkin just, he looked kind of scared, like, I'm going to go fight now, and I don't know I'm going to win this. So that was part of it, and you can't do that against King Mo. You can't go in there with a guy who's going to take you down like King Mo is going to. King Mo, by this time in his career, he's been knocked out. He knows what that feels like. He's going to want to wrestle you if he thinks that's the best way to beat you. And you know the only way to beat King Mo if you're not a great wrestler is to knock him out, hit him in the face, Questions about his jaw. He's been rattled before. But instead, Larkin just went in there and let King Mo take him down. Didn't really have much of a counter. And, you know, that was it. Um, I love King Mo. <laughs> really underrated fighter. One of the best personalities I think MMA has ever seen. Natural charisma. Incredible competitor. Um, you know, this was a really good moment for King Mo. Well, it would, wouldn't turn out real well for him. But at the time, it was... <laughs> Uh, in the moment. Yeah. But the fight would change things for Larkin uh, to his credit. It seemed like he would learn from this and he would be back to take on Robbie Lawler in July, but this time it was at middleweight. And I believe that he's been at middleweight the rest of his career. I don't, I, I'll probably, I'll try to check that the next time that you're, uh, you're chatting, but yeah, it, it was, he seemed to learn from it and decided that it was time for him to move down. Cause it just made more sense of course. Uh, but yeah, so that was, uh, it ended up being, I guess, something of a positive for him for Mo. We'll get into, get into the reason after we wrap up this event, but so stay tuned for that. Uh, but this would be it for, for King Mo in strike force. He would move on to Bellator, spend the rest of his U S career there. He would also compete for Ryzen in Japan. He would be in some big fights with both promotions. He beat fighters like Czech Congo, Olympic gold medalists, Satoshi Ishii and Rampage Jackson, which I will never forget uh, the buildup, the feud between the two of them, because I believe that's when Rampage said, everybody get ready for some black on black violence, uh, which I don't know how well that would play even today. Uh, but he would also go down and defeat to the, at the hands of Phil Davis, Crow Cop and Ryan Bader. Mo would hang up the gloves in 2019 with a record of 21, 10, 0, and 1. Uh, I should mention Mo, great personality, like you said, great charisma. He's agreed to come on the podcast. We just not, have not been able to nail down a date yet. So uh, 
actually right before we started recording, I, I emailed him to follow up and I'll shoot him a text tomorrow, but I would love to get him on the show. Cause that would be a great, great conversation. I don't know if he's willing to talk about the drug test or not. He seems like he would be willing to just cause he's just seems to be a very open guy, but I, I don't know that for a fact, but you were going to add something there. You know, I had long interviews with him about his drug test cause I was still working for somebody in MMA at that time. And, um, <clears throat> You know, he swear it was it was not his fault. It was the supplement that was given to him. I believe the guy. Like, I mean, I think King Mo's not a guy who uses enhancements to get ahead. He's a he's a wrestler, and he's just naturally, you know, built to to push himself to the extreme without cheating. So, I believe him. I you know, I believe it was a supplement he took that he did not know, you know, would show up as a legal, you know, drug. Well, we'll talk about it later, but, but anyway, I'm team King Mo for sure. Um, around this time though, is when they went to that interview with Misha Tate that you referenced and, uh, Misha Tate, I just thought it was funny because she said <laughs> that Ronda Rousey talked her way into a title fight yeah. and that she was going to send her to the back of the line. <laughs> I just thought, Oh my God, Misha Tate. It's like, don't say that. But I was just wondering, can we see Rousey return one day versus no. Tate? I think she's done. I mean, that, would, that would be a fight, though. That would be. It would be. It'd fight. be a great fight. Although uh, uh, Tate just announced that she's dropping down to 125 for the first time. So I highly, highly doubt that. If Ronda came back, my guess would be she'd do like a, like special attraction, like catch weight at 140 or something like that. I. Who knows? I mean, you never never say never, right? But uh, yeah, I, I highly highly doubt I, that. I don't understand. Amisha Tate at 125. Give me a break. I mean, she uh, doesn't want to fight her friend. Like, come on, just fight her friend. It's not like they're blood. It's a fight. Misha Tate, like, she's not going to be successful at 125. She she's probably not even going to make weight. I mean, it's ridiculous. But that's another podcast. All right. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> um, I should I mention, mention on Larkin. Larkin. I just so I just looked it up. So he fought at middleweight and actually dropped even further down in 2015 to welterweight and got a Bellator welterweight title shot in 2017, Douglas Lima, which he lost. And since then, he's done. He did a catchweight at 180. Uh, he did a catchweight um, at the end of 2019 at 173.5 pounds because he had missed weight. Um, and then he was back up at middleweight the last in his last fight of May, which was in May of 2021. He's actually on a five-fight win streak as we record this. So he's in Bellator. So he's, he's actually doing pretty well at this point. Um, yeah, he's done very well in his career, 23-7-1. So anyways, but yeah, we never, we've never seen him at light heavyweight again. As far as I know, I don't think that we ever will, but this brings us to the co-main event. Robbie Lawler taking on Adlin Amagov at 185 pounds. Lawler was 18 and eight coming into this one, but he had lost two straight in strike force. First, he'd gotten submitted by Jacques Ray Souza with the middleweight title on the line. And then he lost a unanimous decision to Tim Kennedy after that. Uh, in fact, if you look at his record, Ruthless, Ruthless had only won two of his last six fights, so he was hungry for a win here and probably a signature one. Adlan Amagov was 10-1-1 coming in, kind of an unknown, wasn't wasn't really a, a big-name fighter by any stretch of the imagination, but he was 2-0 in strike force, which included a knockout win over current UFC veteran Anthony Smith in his last bout. Amagov trained out in New Jersey. He had trained with the Emilianenko brothers in the past, and the Russian fighter was seen as a true threat, especially I guess he was known for his kind of crazy kicks and uh, his, his kind of crazy strikes. So uh, there was really an opportunity for him to, to make a big splash on the American MMA scene. But once the bell rang, things went didn't go so well for Mr. Amagov. Lawler went right after it, throwing strikes. 
Amagov ducked, got a quick takedown. Lawler was active from the bottom. He was doing pretty well, got to a sitting position, and that's where Amagov apparently forgot the rules through a knee to the head that connected. Lawler looked at the ref who immediately stepped in, called time, gave Lawler a chance to recover. He also took a point away from Amagov, but what was really more important here was that he had Lawler on his back, even though he was kind of seated against the, the cage. He had him in a position that Lawler did not do well out of, and now the fight was back on the feet, and in a moment of poetic justice, Lawler unleashed a legal, point that out, legal flying knee that hurt Amagov, who crumpled to the mat after some follow-up shots. The ref stopped it, and Lawler was back in the win column. Robbie Lawler defeated Adlan Amagov via TKO, come away with kicks and punches. Really should have been flying knee and punches at 148 of the first round. Where did they get this guy from? Like, I, I, I thought this was an odd matchup. I had never he, heard. He, he, I mean, he had, had like, like, like I said, he got the win over Smith, but he'd only had two fights in strike force. I mean, 10 and 10, one and one, he lost his first fight to Alexi. Uh, now I can't think of his, uh, of his, of his, uh, his last name, but the Russian that's in the, um, uh, uh, that's in the UFC. Um, now the heavyweight guy, but he'd lost him and then decided to train with him. But yeah, it was seemed to be kind of out to your point. He seemed to be out of, out of nowhere. Alexi Olenek. Yeah. Sorry. But anyways, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say um, that was odd first. I'm like, this is a weird kind of matchup. I don't know who this guy is. Um, that wasn't poetic justice, Phil. That was karma. Okay. That was like, and that was quick karma too. I do have to say though, uh, how hurt could Lawler have been? Like the second he got the knee, he looks up at the Rav. He does his, you know, classic Robbie Lawler frown and then points to his head. And I'm just like, you know, if you're hurt, you don't have time to do that. It's like the wrestlers who are, you know, faking, you know, being beat up and they're adjusting their tights or their hair. You know, it's just like, come on, Robbie. I don't think you were that hurt. He milked it. It was odd. It was such bad timing because he was in a position that he may not have been able to get up from, or at least he would have lost the round. Um, that being said, Lawler threw this tremendous knee. I don't know where that came from. And he won. I think the, the illegal knee probably woke him up and said, I better stop this guy before I find myself on my on my back again. Lawler, crazy power. He's just a guy who he's almost got like heavyweight knockout power, you know, in that littlish, you know, in that, what is he, a middleweight um, yeah. body, middleweight. you know? Yeah. yeah. So. Well, okay, so I got to be a little bit of an apologist for him. I mean, look, the guy has him in a bad position. He throws a knee, and whether it hurt him or not, it was clearly – an illegal knee, you know, and it clearly connected. So him saying, Hey, what's up? What? Cause you gotta think Lawler's down in that position. He doesn't have to defend against knees. So he's not right. So, cause if he has to worry about knees then his defense from where that, from that position is different, but because he didn't think he had to worry about the knees, he left himself totally open to it. So it connected. It was a blatantly illegal knee. And, and I do, and I think he did the right thing and saying, Hey, what's up? So, and then he took the time to recover afterwards on the mic. He said that it bothered him a little bit, but you know, Hey, we got to fight. So I, and Lawler's never, ever been known for being a guy that, you know, like tries to take advantage of those types of opportunities. So, uh, you know, being a dirty fighter or anything like that. So yeah, I got no issue with him doing it. I get your point, but I, I, I just, I don't have any issues maybe, with, with that at all. Maybe he thought Kim Winslow was the referee and he had to point <laughs> out like, Hey, I just got hit with an illegal. Yeah. I just want to make sure she was doing her job. Even though she wasn't the ref. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Either way, both Lawler and Amagov would be back in Strike Force later in the year, which brings us to the main event. Josh's favorite fighter, Strike Force middleweight champion Luke Rockhold, taking on Keith Jardine with the belt on the line at 185 pounds. The champ was eight and one coming in. He had won all seven of his fights in Strike Force. His first six Strike Force wins had been finishes, which included defeating uh, known fighters such as Corey Devella and UFC or tough vet Jesse Taylor. After recovering from a shoulder injury, which would, as you and I have discussed, Josh, the guy's been fighting this long, and he's only got 21 career fights. Uh, he, just injury, always injury prone. He would come out of this fight with an injury as well. But after recovering from a shoulder injury, Rockhold had taken on Jacques Ray Souza with the Strike Force middleweight title on the line. He'd edged out in a unanimous decision victory to win the belt in what I thought was a very close fight. Jardine was, again, as we've discussed, a curious choice to get a title fight here in Josh in just a second. I'd like to get your thoughts on it, but he was 17-9-2 coming in. He fought to a draw in his most previous battle, light heavyweight fight in strike force against Gegard Musassi. Prior to that, he'd won two straight against unheralded competition, and he had lost five straight before that, including four in the UFC. And Rockle had said he didn't underestimate Jardine, but he knew he was only there because of the name value he brought from the UFC, so he, he understood the assignment here. Uh, Josh, I wanted to get your thoughts. Do you think this was legit? What, what, what did you think about this matchmaking here? Well, I think that it was probably just one of the fringe benefits of working with the UFC was, you know, being able to get somebody who had that kind of UFC name and throw them in there. Let's be realistic. We've talked about it. The people who are watching Strikeforce aren't really watching a lot of Strikeforce stars currently at this time because many of them had already left. So if there's a, a guy with a former UFC name on that card, it might make more people pay attention. Like, oh, I know that guy. He was in the UFC, and he's taken on this Luke Rockhold. Clearly, he doesn't deserve a title shot, but this is one of the things MMA does not do very well. I mean, how many times have we seen guys fill in at the last minute who don't deserve shots? Um, interim title matches just for the sake of selling pay-per-views. Um, I guess you could make a case that even though Luke was champion, he was still untested. So maybe going up against a veteran, it could be a competitive fight, and we would see whether Luke was the real deal or not. I guess you could make that case. But, I mean, I don't know who else they could have considered to come in there at the last minute. We've talked about Strikeforce's roster not being super deep. So, and that you, make, you make good points there, and, and I agree that maybe it's just one of those, hey, let's give him a fight with a guy that's going to give him a fight that'll prove you know whether or not he's a real, real deal. And then, like you said, there weren't a ton of options, especially on short notice, you know, especially on short notice. But regardless, apparently this has been a t this had been a tough weight cut for Jardine. He had, according to Mauro Rinelli, he had to lose 19 pounds in 24 hours before the weigh-ins. I can't imagine that didn't affect his his performance. And once the bell rang, whether it was just wrong weight class or whether it was the, you know, the, the weight cut or whatever it was. I, it was pretty obvious that this was not going to be a super competitive fight. The two tried some things on their feet with both throwing some kicks and punch and rock rock, excuse me, kicks and punches. Rockhold was clearly the more disciplined technical striker and, and Jardine. I, I, Josh, I don't know how you felt. I thought he looked really slow. Like I, he was trying some odd angles with his kicks, but I felt like Rockhold could see them coming a mile away. I mean, he, he just he just looked really slow to me. It, 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 I, that's I just I thought he didn't look good at all. Yeah, and I think it's hard to fight a guy like Jardine because what I did notice was that Rockhold would sort of 
get a little sloppy himself. If- he threw that hit that he threw that high kick way, way too much. Uh, if Jardine had any sort of uh, anything, you know, from a game plan perspective, he would have been taking him down or, or something because he just he threw that high kick so often. It was like it, it was almost like a meme, you know. Yeah, so I think Rockhold got away with a, a couple of moments of fighting a little bit sloppy there. But Jardine's a hard guy to fight. He's awkward yeah. in there. Yeah. yeah, there's no question. Uh, but Rockhold did land a couple nice spinning back kicks to the body. One of them in particular is as Jardine was moving forward. And you could I mean, it, it kind of stiffened him a little bit. Uh, and Jardine tried to answer with a couple wild strikes. He traded some more before Jardine paid for a slow punch. As he caught a counter right hand that stunned him, the champ swarmed. Jardine seemed all right. This was kind of a weird stoppage, too. Another another fight that was kind of plagued by a weird referee involvement. Uh, but he seemed to be okay. Got caught with another punch that dropped him and then some stiff follow-up shots. Uh, the ref finally stepped in and waved things off. Probably a late stoppage, but a solid win over a solid if overmatched vet in uh, Keith Jardine for Luke Rockhold. So the official uh, official uh, result was Luke Rockhold defeated Keith Jardine via TKO, come by way of punches at 426 of the first round. That was one of the best Luke Rockhold punches I've ever seen him throw. I mean, I would not say he's somebody who's known for his right hand, uh, but he caught him coming in, crisp, short, a little bit of lucky in terms of the timing, and that was it. You know, he just zapped him. Rockhold was just too good. He's younger, he's quicker. His reflexes are stronger, and yeah, Jardine was just Jardine was just sort of almost working on a different wavelength in this fight. And once they met, Rockhold knocked him out. Um, I did think their fight was stopped a little bit late. Uh, Herb Dean probably let him take a couple of punches, and it's probably because it's Keith Jardine and given a little bit of respect to the veteran in terms of, hey, we think you're good, so maybe you can somehow figure it out, so we'll let you hang in there a little bit longer. But uh, no, it was not pretty to watch. And I think Luke kind of actually paused there for a second. But it was a one-sided, one-sided fight. And it was a good star-making moment for Rockhold. Yeah, yeah, who reacted very emotionally, very excited. He, def, guy, definitely knew how to celebrate a win in the cage for sure. Uh, but Rockhold would break his finger during this defense. He'd be out four to six weeks after the win, which wouldn't have mattered because you don't see champions fighting, you know, within a month of their def, uh, of a defense usually. So, uh, but he would return to defend the belt against a worthy challenger, Tim Kennedy, in July. Jardine would also be back on that same card, taking on Hodger Gracie. But yeah, another another Rockhold injury. I know that's I know that's shocking. Are you right. saying – I'm sorry, but Rockhold injuring his finger, of all things, is, is just hilarious. I, I didn't know you could injure your finger, your shoulder, your knee, every other – his back. His wrist. Know. His wrist. <laughs> he, he, man, that guy – that guy hurt himself so often. It's it's almost funny. Like it's it's almost funny. And what do you mean champions don't fight within four to six weeks? Like Roman Reigns on a Sunday, then defends the title on Monday. Oh my! God. I don't understand what you're talking about. Oh my god! All right. <laughs> <sighs> Anyways, all right. Well, we did have a positive uh, drug test after this, as King Mo was flagged. He tested positive for the anabolic steroid. Just just I'm like I don't know how to say it. Drostanolone. Drostan alone. That sounds good. Uh, the fight result, result was changed to a no contest as a result, and Moe's license was suspended for a year. And then after meeting with the Nevada State Athletic Commission in March, the suspension was reduced to nine months. However, 
There was some really bad news coming out of that commission meeting as he was released by Zufa after some comments he made on Twitter following that meeting. Mo explained, quote, she, talking about one of the commissioners, asked if I did research for my training. I didn't get what she meant by the question, and she rolled her eyes and asked, do you speak English? Can you read? I felt like I was, I felt I was being disrespected by the woman's comments. How are you going to ask a college-educated, well-traveled man if he can speak or read English? I'm speaking, I'm speaking English right in front of you, and I've been speaking English right now in front of you the past 15 minutes, end quote. After the release, Mo issued an apology to the commissioner stating I was quote, I was out of line for calling the woman the B word. And I was wrong for that. I was kind of mad about the comments. I was offended by the comments made towards me and I was out of line. I was too emotional. I apologize for that. With that being said, I still feel that I was offended, but I'm, I'm in the wrong for what I said end quote. So an auspicious end to strike forces, uh, or sorry for King Mo's run in strike force. He, you know, wins a, a really, really nice win, gets a big victory here, but then test positive. Uh, as you've said, Josh, he's claimed that it was due to a, a dietary supplement that he'd been giving a, a given a, a, t- a tainted supplement. So just an inauspicious end to his, his run with strike force, unfortunately. Uh, but told disclosed fighter payroll of $566,000, as we mentioned, for his main event win. Luke Rockhold got $90,000, which included a $25,000 win bonus. Keith Jardine got $30,000. Robbie Lawler, $150,000. Adlin Amagov got ten. dollars King Mo, ninety-five, dollars which included a $15,000 win bonus. Larkin got seventeen. dollars Woodley got sixty, dollars which included a $30,000 win bonus. And Jordan Meehan got nine. dollars Pretty entertaining event overall, but... Just, yeah, a far cry from the good old days of Strike Force in terms of feeling like this was a major event. I, it just it just felt like another, like, boxing card on, you know, H, HBO or Showtime or ESPN or something like that. Just It felt like a, like a tough card. Like, it just, you know, just didn't, yeah. It just, to me, it was a good indicator of where we were with Strike Force at this point. And that said, good wins for Woodley, Lawler, and Rockhold. I definitely wouldn't have paid to watch it. You know, it's one of those things where if it was on ESPN, I might just watch it through, but it was not, you know, it was, it was not a great card. And yeah, it's kind of sad to be honest with you. But, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we officially have one, or I didn't mention this earlier. We actually have one year of strike force events left to cover, uh, as the promotion would wrap up its run almost exactly one year after Rockhold versus Jardine. So up next on the podcast, again, I'm hoping to get King Mo scheduled. I'm waiting to hear back from him, and I would love to talk to him this week if we can make that happen. Uh, if we aren't, then we are going to be covering Tate versus Rousey. That is going to be a barn burner of an event. I am looking forward to that. It should be a lot of fun to cover. Again, you can reach me at fillitinsidethehexagon.com. I'm always looking for your feedback. Again, I want to apologize for I, I'm just – still a little bit out of it from COVID. I almost feel like I'm, my words are like a little bit slurred. I feel a little slow on the uptake. So please forgive me for that. But Josh, I appreciate you taking the time on a holiday to join me so we could uh, we could get this out there. And listeners, thank you for, for coming along the ride with us. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. And we will see you soon. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial. 
a veteran of the paddle tennis world and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning or have never even heard of paddle or padel as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with a pro tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!